Um, well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 28. We will get there eventually. Eventually, we will get there. I promise. Um, like Matt said, we've been talking about identity, and this morning we're going to talk about really our purpose and what we like do in this life that we've been given, how we live, what we spend our time on living. I was thinking this week about my, one of my first job interviews. When I was 16 or 17, my dad was like, hey, get a job. And uh, I said, um, okay, uh, I'll work on it. And then about six months later, he's like, how's the job hunt going? I was like, you know, dad, I'm kind of kind of doing this kind of on, I'm kind of keeping this low key. I'm uh, kind of keeping my eye on the markets and keep my ear to the ground and just seeing what I hear. And I'm not, not getting much yet, but I'm waiting. And he's like, okay, how about this? You have to, you have to apply to three jobs a week. Um, and if you don't, you're basically grounded all weekend. You can't do anything. I was like, okay. So I started just getting applications everywhere and applying to all these places I did not care about. And I applied to a McDonald's next to my house and I didn't want to work there really. And so I got an interview and I walked to the interview from my house and I, I, you know, didn't like try to look nice or anything. I just wore my clothes from school and they were like, you know, why do you want to work here? And I said, well, you're close to my house. I walked here and that's like a huge, a huge one. And then also just like, I like McDonald's food, it's pretty good, and I assume there's some kind of a discount or something, or I can eat while I'm working or something. And they didn't call me back after that interview. They were not really impressed with my passion for working for the McDonald's company. Um, <clears throat> I had a lot of interviews like that over that period where my dad, uh, maybe it was my way of proving to my dad, you can't make me get a job, I don't know. But in the end, believe me, he made me get a job. Um, remember that about that story, if anything. Um, I also was thinking about a job interview that I had the first uh, at the at a church that I worked at. It was the church that I was at before before here, and um, I had a really good friend who was a pastor there, and we had always wanted to do ministry together. We kind of wanted to see the church. We wanted to see the same things happen in the church, and had sort of a shared vision. And so um, I was a youth pastor at the time, and he said, "You know, I would love it if you could could come and maybe be a part of our church and work as youth pastor. But we only have really enough like money and youth group and all that stuff for you to maybe like part of your time be a youth pastor. You have to do something else." With the rest of your time. So we're trying to figure out what that would be. It'd be something else, maybe like a youth and family pastor or whatever, but we'll figure it out. But I want you to come up and meet with the elders interview. So we drove up, interviewed with these elders. And, and I remember saying them in the interview, I remember saying, I have a passion for youth and I, I would love to come up here and do this. But at the same time, I just want you to know whatever else you need me to do with this other part of my job, whatever, I will do it. I, I don't care what it is. I'll clean the toilets. I'll clean the floors. I'll work with any group you don't want to work with. And they were like, you know, junior high and high school, right? No. Uh, just kidding, guys. And I was like, I'm just, it's, it's an easy joke. Sorry. Um, they were like, they were like, you know, I said, the point is this. I, I really, really want to be a part of what the church is doing. And I want to make it happen. And I want the church to be healthier and better. And I want to be a part of that in literally any way I can. And what I've learned in the church is that sometimes that means you need to do this. And sometimes that means you need to make a video about something. And sometimes that means you got to vacuum the floor. But I'll do whatever you need me to do. Because more than anything, I want to be a part of a place where I see the gospel being preached. And I, and I, and I have a passion for youth. But I also just have a passion for the church. And there was a big difference between those two job interviews that I did. And I think you, you all know probably what that difference feels like because you all know what it's like to maybe think about doing something just for the money, right? Just because you are going to earn some money and then you can go on and enjoy your life with now the money that you've earned. And you also know what it is to care about something or want something or believe in something so much that you say, I'm willing to do anything to see this thing happen. And I've had jobs like that. I've had, I've had, I've had all kinds of situations in my, my life like that. And what we're talking about this morning is this idea of something called ambition. And I want to define ambition for you. It's this. It's a strong desire to do or achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. A strong desire to do or to achieve something. That sounds good, right? I think we all have ambition of some kind in this life. You might think, I'm not an ambitious person. I'm not one of those incredibly driven people um, that I often see. But I don't think that means that you're not ambitious or you don't have ambition. Because ambition is basically the thing that we decide we do have a desire to achieve. The thing we do want to work towards. And it usually requires hard work. It requires determination. Now, we have all sorts of things that we want to do, that we want to be about doing, that we want to kind of see happen in the world. Some of us actually want money 
because we just want to live a good, comfortable life. And so we, we get a job or we do something to earn that. Our ambition is not necessarily even the thing that we do for much of our time. It's what we do with the stuff we earn. You know, we, we, we work to live. We don't live to work, we would say. And then some of us have been in those situations where you have a job, you have a thing that you're invested in, and you're willing to do anything for it to see it come to fruition, to see it happen. I can't think of a better example. I know this is kind of an easy one, but I can't think of a better example than the idea of parenting. The idea of um, having a child and then saying, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to work all hours because you think, that's one of the bigger surprises about having kids, you think once you get out of the baby stage, you, don't, you get to start sleeping, right? Um, and you kind of get to sleep, but it's almost worse because you get to sleep, but you've been like trained, this sort of PTSD almost, where like, like, when, a, like when a kid, you, you, you could go from the deepest sleep possible to just being like propelled out of your bed 10 feet across your room and landing on the floor, ready to deal with anything at the sound of footsteps on carpet somehow, right? Or somebody coming in and banging your door or whatever. You're just, you're always like that. You're always ready to go. There's no end to it. This last Sunday night, we had a family meeting here at the church, and somebody else was taking care of our kids so that Ellie and I could both be at the family meeting. And um, our kids fell asleep at their house, and they put our daughter in some of their daughter's pajamas. And this pair of pajamas, uh, Ellie didn't notice them when she picked her up and took her home and put her to bed. Um, Well, this pair of pajamas was a pair of skeleton pajamas, and they glowed in the dark. And so our daughter went to bed. Neither one of us knew that she was wearing glow-in-the-dark skeleton pajamas. We don't own glow-in-the-dark skeleton pajamas because that's obviously a sinful thing to own and have in your house, and we're Christians. (laughs) And I'll do a whole series on that once October comes. But we don't own a pair of glow-in-the-dark skeleton pajamas. And so imagine my surprise at four in the morning when a headless glow-in-the-dark skeleton (laughs) walks in my room and wakes me up. And I was like, Ellie, you didn't tell me? Because for some reason, in a split second, I realized we didn't own a pair of glow in the dark. That's the other crazy thing. It's like I wake up and I'm like, we don't own a pair of those. And then I see her right there standing in front of me, like moving around. And then she like had to show them to me. So it was like, oh, Davey, you have skeleton pajamas. Yeah, come here. And then we had to like go in the bathroom and then go into the closet and then shut the closet and turn the lights off. And then she had to dance around in them so I could see her in them before she would be willing to go back to bed. And I get mad at Ellie. I'm like, why didn't you tell me she was wearing glow in the dark skeleton pajamas? And she goes, I didn't know she was wearing them. She woke me up at like two and all she was doing was standing there, which is the other weird thing. That, that feeling that you have without kids that if a person stood next to your bed, you'd probably wake up. It's the same with kids. It's the same terrifying, creepy feeling that someone's watching me while I sleep. And so you have that feeling, and then you wake up, and there's a headless skeleton standing right next to your bed, right? No, 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 trying to climb in your bed. Sorry, trying to climb in your bed, a headless skeleton, okay? I I honestly was not ready for that part of it. The idea that, like, I just, every night, at every time, at every moment, I'm going to need to drop everything in order to help this kid. But that is the nature of parenting, is that you go, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for them to basically flourish, for them to grow and do well. Uh, Then they'll get to this point when they're older where they don't even want to be around me, and I have to be okay with that. And then they'll maybe get to a point where they want to be around me again because they need to be, and I'm okay with that. But the fact is, like, uh, parenting is something that you sign up for for life. And you're not getting paid to do it. You're not doing it other than the fact that you really, really want to see this person grow and do well and thrive. And parenting isn't the only example of that. There's all kinds of things that we do that we care about in our life that we say, I want this to happen, and that's the thing that we are ambitious for. That's the thing that we're willing to put in some hard work and show some determination and be willing to be disciplined to see that thing happen. We all have that stuff that we care about, and that's something that we have to talk about if we're going to talk about our identity. If I'm going to talk about who I am, then I need to talk about what I'm going to spend all my time doing and the thing that I am restless for, the thing that I am driven to, the thing that I really ultimately wake up in the morning every day and say, I want to see this thing happen. There's a couple of things about, um, about ambition or about the way that we work that I think are important in understanding this. There's a quote from this philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, and he says this in a book called Sickness Unto Death. He says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try and build its identity around something besides God. What he means by that is that it's our normal state to try to build ourselves around something, but that thing isn't God. Now, if you believe that God created us and he is the center of our identity, 
But we build our lives, the natural human state, he says, is to build our lives around something other than God. What that means, what he's saying, is he's saying that we are born empty. We are born feeling empty. We are born feeling like there is a hole within us, and unless we find a way to fill it, we will be empty, that we are incomplete. Now, we know that feeling. I would call it a void. I have a void, and that is the emptiness that I feel. Um, when I'm born, as I grow, and as I live my life, and I become more self-aware, not just, of, not just self-aware, but aware of the world around me. What can I do, then, to fill that? What could I possibly do with this life to fill that void so that I can feel complete? Who can I possibly become so that I can fill that void and I can be complete? How can I simply live in a way that is enjoyable enough that that void has been filled, that I feel that my life has been complete? All I know is this. I seem to start out without completeness rather than with it. What can I say all this time in my life amounted to? I know it sounds like a little bit of a downer type of a thing to say, but I do think it's very true about the way that we operate, that we operate with this void within us, with this empty state. So some of us build things. We want to be able to stand back at the end and look at them and be proud of them and say, look at what I've built, look at what I've done. I don't feel empty anymore. I feel complete. Some of us invent things or we create something new or we even create a version of ourselves that is so unique and so distinct from everyone around us that we can step back and we can say, look, now I'm complete. Now I filled the void. Some of us want to simply look in a mirror and see that we've grown into somebody who's worthwhile enough. And unfortunately, the way that pride works is that it only really matters what we're like in comparison to everybody else around us. So I have to be better. If I can't rise above the pack somehow, then I still remain empty. I remain void. I have to be better than the people around me. I have to come up with better things, do better things, think better things, feel better things, live better things, or accomplish better things. If I don't, then I'll never really feel complete or full. We call this restlessness. We call it longing. We call it a drive. We call it simply not wanting to settle. Some of us were raised with high expectations, and so we were raised with this feeling that um, we should be doing something important and significant, and that if we don't, then maybe we're not complete. And a lot of people are really hard on younger generations today, saying that younger generations are, are not really willing to commit to things, are not really willing to invest themselves into one thing and go with it. But what people fail to understand is that the reason that might be the case is because Today, modern generations are sort of raised with this idea that you are so incredibly unique and significant that you must be changing the world in whatever that you do. That, that, that what you must do must be so incredibly significant and fulfilling that what we find is that every time we start down a road, we go, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. And the kinds of things that people used to invest their lives in that they were okay with, we don't find satisfying anymore. And so we go, well, now what do I do? And maybe I can try this, and maybe I can be this, and maybe I'll take a break and start this thing now. But until I find the thing that makes me so incredibly fulfilled, and people often look at me and say, wow, then I'm not there yet. And this is the reason. It's sort of the, the weight that gets often put upon us. Ambition is the drive to do what I do while I'm here. And it's different for all of us, but to some degree we all have it. And it's driven by one of two things. It's driven by either desire or discontent. And whichever one of those it is, you could write that down if you want. But some of us, it's driven by a desire that we have. And that desire can be really simple. It can just be, I want to be happy. I want to be comfortable. That's it. I actually don't consider myself a very ambitious person. I don't need to accomplish things or achieve things. I just want to, like, do what my parents did, or I just want to, like, you know, live kind of a normal life, and I want it to be pretty fulfilling, you know? I want to fall in love and get married. I want to have kids. I want to get a good job, or I want to, I want to go on vacation a couple times a year. I want to maybe, you know, have people tell me that I made a difference in some way. I uh, want my kids to turn out pretty well. I want to retire. I want to enjoy my grandkids. And then I want to have a legacy to leave behind or a name or a reputation that says, wow, they were one of the good ones, right? That's not too much to ask. That's what a lot of us want, right? 
I have a desire, and the desire is just that I be really happy and fulfilled by what I experience. So maybe my job or the things I do for money, they just kind of give me the ability to do that thing. Some people have a desire, and the desire is simply for a lot of stuff. We say, I want a lot. I want to amass money. I want to amass wealth. I want to experience things. I was talking to a guy after the first service, and he said this quote. He said, money doesn't buy happiness, but money gives you the, uh, the ability to experience your misery in some fantastic places. And I was thinking about that because in the first service, I, there was a stand-up comedian who said, um, I'm not saying I'm a stand-up comedian, but I was quoting him, who said, um, you know, they say money does my happiness, but you've never seen anybody on a jet ski, you've never seen a person on a jet ski looking sad, have you? You know, or like, or like they say money does my happiness, but have you seen the faces of people on jet skis? And then I saw this, uh, this meme online, and it was like, uh, I think it was Jay-Z, the rapper, and he was on a jet ski, and he did not look happy. And so... <laughs> That's what I think is funny about that quote. I think it's actually probably pretty true. A lot of us have desire, and uh, I had this coach in, um, I had this wrestling coach in high school. I know. Yeah, it makes sense. I had this wrestling coach in high school, and I was at school the day before school started, and I was walking in and, uh, to some Bible club meeting, which makes more sense, I'm sure, and, and I saw him in the classroom. The door was open, and I went in to say hi to him because um, he was going to be my coach that year, and he was like, hey, Ed. He was like, he was like coaching, he was teaching history. I should say he was coaching history, really, because he was teaching history because he had to teach something if he wanted to be a coach, right? And he, I would say that that was the level of dedication that he brought to his history teaching. It was like, I'm here because I want to be a wrestling coach, and so he was like, hey, uh, hey, uh, what do you want to learn this year, you know? And I was like, what, you know? And he goes, I'm just kind of sitting down taking a look at this and trying to figure out what I want to do. And I'm like, this is the day before school and you're trying to figure out what you're going to teach us this year? You are clearly not here because of your passion for history and students learning, right? Uh, he, He had a desire and his desire was for something else. And so it wasn't reflected in his job that he had or his his title even, uh, his career, his vocation. It was reflected in the thing that that gave him the ability to do. And for a lot of us, that's simply the extent of the ambition that we have. A lot of us are motivated by discontent. Discontent is looking around us and saying things aren't the way they ought to be, and so I want to change that. Or there needs to be something different in the world, and I want that thing to happen. When I look around, I see things that shouldn't be the way they are. I want to fix them. I want to fix the world. I want to fix the city. I want to fix a group of people. I want to, I want to fix a family. I want to make a better place for things. I, I, I see a need. I see something that isn't the way it could be, and that's where my ambition comes in, is I want to be the person, literally, who changes the world in some way or another. I was walking my son into school this week, and... Um, I walk him to his class most days. He wants me to walk him all the way to the class. And so I go, we go to Gaffney Lane, and I'm walking him I'm into the school. And as I walk into, yeah, that's right, represent, uh, Grizzlies, right? Um, Grizzlies, <laughs> should know that. Um, and I walk him in, and uh, right when I get there, right when you walk in the front door, you start walking by the classrooms. And I see Mrs. Gilmore there, and she's, uh, I, I see this inter- these interactions that happen in the hallway um, as we go in every morning. There, there was about four of them this morning, which is why I noticed it. But it's these little huddles that are happening, usually outside of classrooms or on the way to classrooms, and it's usually a teacher or an aide or um, an instructional assistant or somebody that works with special needs students or somebody that helps with reading or somebody that helps students who can't be in the classroom all day long without a break. Uh, for whatever reason, there's just always an adult or a parent of this person, and they're, and they're, and they're talking to a kid. Okay, so I walk by Mrs. Gilmore's classroom, and she's like, okay, it's going to be a good day today, right? Here's, we're going to have, we're going to do reading, and then we're going to have lunch. How about that? And then if lunch goes well, what are we going to do after that? That sounds good, right? We can do that today. Do you think we can do that today? And then I walk by like a little further, and I see somebody walking a kid down the hallway. Don't worry about what happened yesterday. Today's going to be good, right? Are we going to have a good day today? We are, aren't we? We're going to have a good day today. Today's going to be different. We're going to try real hard. We're just going to make it to lunchtime. And then I get almost to my son's classroom, and I see another person standing outside of the kids crying or something, and they're like, today's going to be good. Remember, it's going to be good. Okay, we're going to have a good week. We've been doing a great week so far. I know math and reading are hard, but we're going to work on those together, right? And, and, I, and I got home, and I was, like, I was like, Ellie, I need this. I need somebody standing outside the front door when I walk out of my house, just being like, you can do it today. Don't worry about yesterday. Don't worry about that. It doesn't matter that nobody likes you. You can do it today, and you're going to be fine, and it's going to go great. And, I was, and I'm just kidding. Please don't be standing outside my door. There were some old ladies in the first service, and I could tell they had this twinkle in their eye. I was like, they're going to be outside with like, <laughs> Ellie's laughing because she knows it's going to happen. Please don't be saying that's on my front door. Um, and the reason that these people exist 
is because they see the world and they see things happening and they see kids and they say, I want that kid to do better than they're doing because they're struggling or I want them to do well. I want them to have every opportunity they can. There's a discontent when they see somebody either struggling or having a hard time saying, I want it to be better. And I think it can be, and I'm dedicated to that. They're not having those conversations because their job description says, have three conversations with kids before the day starts. That's what I love about those. They're having those conversations because they say, I care so much about this kid, and I want them to do well no matter what it takes. We have ambition, and it drives us to do things. It drives us to do some very, very good and important things. And for some of us, it's out of a desire to experience a certain kind of life. And for some of us, it's out of a discontent for what we see in the world, or we see the struggles that other people have, and we want to change the world. But either way, that drives us in what we do. And the other thing that drives us in our ambition is that we have gifts. We say, I have gifts. I have things that God has given me the ability to do. And those things make me unique and they make me special and I want to use them. And we often would say that it's a, it's a tragedy when someone doesn't get a chance to use the gifts that they have in life. And some of us get to use those gifts in our job. Some of us get to use those gifts completely in another place outside of our job. Uh, we work, we earn money and a living, and then we go and we devote ourselves after our time working uh, to using our gifts elsewhere. In fact, some people... Um, can allow their gifts to make them into like, you can kind of see them distort a person sometimes and, and they become all about one gift and then you become the kind of this one dimensional sort of person and it's like, well, I'm really intelligent, like intelligence is a big thing, so that's all I'm gonna care about, that's all I'm gonna focus on, that's who I'm gonna be, that's what my identity's gonna be in. I'm really creative, I'm a creative person, so everything needs to be down that road. I've talked with Ellie about this a lot because she's an artist and she went to school and studied art and she said it's very hard in creative areas to not just allow yourself to think if I'm not doing Doing that thing and expressing my creativity that I'm not being myself, which isn't true because that's an aspect of who you are, right? That's one of the gifts that God's given you, but it's not the only one. And there are people who say, I'm good looking and so people have to look at me. That's what I'm going to do. And I've got to spend my whole life trying to be good looking so that people can keep looking at me because if they ever stop looking at me, then I, you know, Steve Marl's name, yeah, yes, he's, he knows, we all know. I don't want to say your name, but yeah. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, I got him to amen. Yeah. We have uh, things that we want to do that we're told, even as we grow up, um, this is who you are, this is what you're gifted in doing, and we care about using those gifts and doing those things in a way that matters. That at the end of our life, that we could look at the life we've lived and the things we've done and said, and said, I feel fulfilled because I got to use my gifts to follow my desire, to fix my discontent. And ultimately, for most of us, if we're honest, it's to fill the hole, to fill the void that I feel I have. Because if I can't, then I won't really be complete. But what if all the stuff we've been saying in our series on identity is true about us? What if the gospel makes me complete? What if because Jesus brings life to me, that because I have Jesus, if I'm a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of his, that that feeling of incompleteness, it isn't real. It's like muscle memory from an old injury or, or wound that you're still recovering from. It's, 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 it's the memory of something that isn't really true, and yet you still often think of it that way. What if it's possible that I really am complete to start with now. What would that mean about my ambition? What would that mean about everything that I do? It would mean that it's all extra. It's all bonus, and I don't need it in order to be fulfilled, in order to have significance. I could lose it all, and I would still be good. I would still be okay. And so if, if that is the way that I could be, then that means that I wouldn't be about my ambition in life, my ambition, the, the thing that drives me the most to see happen with my life, it wouldn't be about any of those other things. My ambition would be for something else. And when Matt was talking last week about what it means to really follow Jesus, and we looked this week at what it really means to, to do what he's called us to do, the job he's given us, what we have to realize first and foremost is that if this is not our real ambition in life, 
then everything God tells us to do, everything Jesus tells us to do just competes with what our heart really wants to do. We resent it, we're frustrated by it, we'll try it for a little while, and we'll ultimately give up and feel defeated because we'll always go back to the things. We will be driven back to the things that complete us. We need them because we need to feel complete. And so this is the job that Jesus gives us, and it's in Matthew 28. I'll read two verses before what I put up on the screen. We'll read verse 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. This is after Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. He's come back now to the disciples. He's been resurrected and come back to the disciples. And we read this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. It's the great mission. It's the mission of God. This is Jesus telling his disciples, this is now your ambition in life. Now that you are complete in me, now that you have experienced wholeness in me, this is now what I call you to do with the rest of your life. And if you do this, if you take up this mission of God with your life, than what we see, and he tells them in other places in the New Testament and in Scripture and Old Testament, is that you will be fulfilled. That's what Matt said last week. You can ask anyone who has given themselves to this, and they will tell you it's worth it. Jesus is saying here to them, I have all authority from God to give you this job. Your creator gave me the authority, because I'm your creator, to give you this job. I made you... And I'm now telling you, this is your job. This is what you are meant to do with the rest of your life. And what he says to us is he says this. He says, go. First and foremost, go. So if I take this up, this call, this job, then I will go. He wants his gospel. Jesus' ambition in his life and his ministry was simple. He wanted his gospel to go out. He wanted people to know the good news of the kingdom of God and how they could have life in him. That was, that was what he did. In fact, he was so good at it that not only did thousands of people come to him, but he traveled and went to people in all sorts of places. And he also brought people along with him so they could see what he was doing so that they could do it because he knew that more people would have to do it than him. And what's the first thing that these guys think when Jesus says go is they think you're not with us now. You're leaving us again. And he says the Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And he tells them elsewhere that the Holy Spirit is going to be even better than he would be walking right alongside you. So he's saying go. What he's not saying is stay. Stay and make disciples of all nations. Stay and make disciples. Stay and proclaim the gospel. And why is he saying go? Because the growth of the gospel happens through sending, not through bringing. The growth of the gospel happens through people going rather than us expecting people to come. We live in a world in which people will no longer come. And there was a time when people came more easily. There was a time when Billy Graham could come to town and, and people would say, who is this Jesus fellow? I want to hear about him more. But nowadays people say, I've heard of Jesus. I've got an idea and an opinion about him. And frankly, I really don't need to hear any more about him from you, but thank you very much. And so we don't expect that people just come, but we go. And that's hard. That's a scary word. That's an uncomfortable word. You know what word's a lot better than go is stay. I like the word stay a lot better than the word go. The word go is unsettling. The word go is exhausting. The word go implies that I have to really leave the comfort of where I am and I have to go somewhere else so that the gospel can be heard, so that people can be discipled. Amen. 
we must go to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends, to the family members that we've given up on who are sometimes the hardest to reach. We must go to the four corners of the world. We must go outside of our state, but we must go outside of even our own neighborhoods to our very city. We must go to our schools and our jobs and everywhere else. We must go rather than simply pray and expect that people would come to us. We must go with churches. We have to plant churches instead of just trying to get bigger. We don't want to be a huge church. We want to plant churches because we believe the world needs many more churches that are proclaiming the gospel, not just bigger ones that people can come to. We aren't satisfied with the idea of adding an addition. We want to see multiplication, and that's what happens when people go. We want to see what we saw with Jesus, where he made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. But the hard thing about going and the hard thing about sending is this, that sending involves a little bit of death. That every time that someone is sent and that we go, there's some death experience there because we depart from one another. Every time a missionary is sent off, we lose a member of the family, and that hurts. People come and they stay in our missions houses, sometimes for months or even years at a time, and uh, as they do that, we get to know them as a church often. I get to know them oftentimes, and, um, and it is so, it is hard when, when they leave once again and go back into the mission field because it's like we've lost a member of our family. It's hard to send people out. And yet we do that. It's hard to be sent out, to go out. And I'm not just talking about people who go overseas to be missionaries. I mean to leave the comfort of a Christian community and to go out is hard because it means a little bit of death. But we see life come from that thing. A small group that grows and has to split to multiply. If you've been through that, it feels like death. Man, that's like one of the messiest things ever. There's no easy way to do something like that. But it has to happen sometimes in order for there to be new life for us to multiply. And why does Jesus say that we all must go, that anyone who wants to be a disciple must go, is because there's simply not enough people that are going. He says this in Matthew chapter 9, and you can turn to Matthew 9 because we're going to go back to something else here um, in a second if you want to read with us. In Matthew 9, 35 through 36... We read about Matthew becoming a disciple, and, or no, sorry, we read about Jesus talking about reaching the lost. He says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, Jesus says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He is saying to them the opposite of how we think it really is. We don't believe that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We believe that the harvest is like very measly, that the harvest is pitiful, And we think that because we go, look at all the workers, and where's the harvest? Jesus is saying, I look out and I see not a group of people who are ruining the world that I'm trying to live in, but I see people that I pity and I desire to help and to reach. Not pity because I think lowly of them, but pity because my heart breaks for them because he says they're being harassed. And so he says, what we need is more workers, He says, the harvest is plentiful. Would you believe that the workers are simply few, that we must go out? That we actually must go because there are not enough that are going. One of the reasons why as a church this last year we took a break from a lot of programs is because we recognize the need to make some space in our lives and in the lives of many of our ministries to be able to get back into the habit of simply sitting with one another in relationship because we realize that that's an uncomfortable thing for many of us to do. That we don't have the space in our lives at the time, many of us, to simply go and be around someone who's, who's not a Christian because of the amount of time that we've invested often into church things that we do. And because that as a church, we recognize that we in the past had been very successful at bringing people with things. A lot of programs that we've done. But we realize that we are no longer as successful as we used to be. And so we said we have to stop and we have to reevaluate how is it that we are reaching people and what are we doing to do that? 
It's very hard for us, this idea of going rather than coming because so much of modern church is built upon the idea that people just come to us and that we don't go. We say we have paid professionals, they go. We have supported missionaries and they go. And we believe that they're gonna do the work and, and we'll simply support them. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus is telling his disciples, if you are going to follow me, then you must go. All of you. That this must be your ambition in life. And we have to accept, if that's true, that much of the time what we want to see, even in the way that we do church, is not necessarily what other people need. I think we would like to believe that what we want is what they need. This is a simple mistake that you make if you're ever dealing with people, that what I want is what they need. That if I want things to be a certain way, that, that they need things to be a certain way. And that by doing what I want the most, by creating what we want the most in our lives, in our communities, in our churches, that somehow that's what will reach people who are very different from us without being honest with ourselves and saying, or is this just what I want and the way that I want it to be? And that that might be the reason why it seems like the harvest isn't as plentiful as Jesus says is because I'm not really looking for the harvest. I'm simply looking to the things that I've become comfortable doing. And so Jesus says, go and make disciples. So I will go and I will make disciples. I will go out of my comfort zone, out of where I've known and what I've been a part of, and I will make disciples. This is why as a church we say that we are committed to making, um, to making and training up and equipping missionaries and disciple makers. To raising up and training, because we're like, I don't know how to do it. I'm, well, how am I supposed to do this, right? I've, I've never done it before. I'm not the person that does that. These, you talk about gifts. Those definitely aren't mine. And yet you're saying we're all supposed to be able to do this. This is why the, the job of ministry is described as equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Because the idea is that we all need to know how to do this. And so we want to raise up and train missionaries and disciple makers. Each and every one of us saying, I am called to be a missionary or a disciple maker and a disciple maker. I'm called to, to, to give the word of the gospel to people who don't yet know it or maybe think they've heard it but don't understand at all the heart of the gospel. And to help those who know it to be discipled. But what does it mean to be discipled? It means to then feel that I go and make also a disciple. It doesn't just mean that I take it for myself, but I see a desire, I have a desire to give that thing to another person. And we recognize that the way that that happens, the way that making disciples happens, when Jesus says go, he doesn't say go and share the good news. Go and proclaim the gospel. Go and tell them everything wrong with them. Go and build something cool that they'll like. He says, go and make disciples. And how are disciples made? Disciples are made by bringing people to Jesus. Gospel growth happens through the lives of people. So it will always be about people and Jesus. It will always put me in the lives of other people. Making disciples does not mean I have a job that puts me alone in a room somewhere where I read and study and think and pray all the time and I'm not with people. It will always involve being with people. And that is something that is very hard for many of us. Do you know why? Because we don't like people. We're like, I don't like them. I don't like high-density housing or medium-density housing and at this point, not even low-density housing. I want no-density housing. I want to only be around the people who I want to be around, and I'm sick of all the other ones. Relationships are hard. They're exhausting. They take way too much time. They're a mess. They're not predictable. You can do all the math you want, Pastor. If you met with two people and they met with two people, none of that will work because after 30 minutes, I won't want to be around them anymore. Have you been in most small groups? They're not as fun as you describe them all the time. Community and people is very hard and messy. So you say go and make disciples, is there any way possible that that cannot involve people? Because if so, I am on board, sign me up. You're like, wow, he's describing it pretty well. It's like he knows how it feels, you know, no. Just kidding, I love people. Everyone knows that about me. This is the reason why we use this analogy often of uh, the trellis and the vine in our church. That, um, that growing spiritually, the Bible describes that as growing like a plant, that someone plants a seed and you water it and it grows, and it's kind of like a vine growing, and it can grow and grow, produce fruit. But like any uh, 
group of plants that grow, especially like a vine, eventually you get to a point where you can only grow so big, and then you need some kind of a structure for that thing to grow, and that's like the church, right? You get a bunch of people together, and you go, now how do we continue growing in a way that has some structure to it so we can keep growing, because there's a lot of us. And so you build ministries and programs, you build ways for, you hire people and start to pay them, and you get a building, and you, you do things, because you need some structure so that the vine can keep growing. But the mistake that it's easy to make, especially because the vine work is so much harder and unpredict more unpredictable than the trellis work, is you say, let's get really good at the trellis. Let's get really good at building all this stuff that we need and the structures that we have and the ministries and all these things that we do. And let's kind of let somebody else worry about growing the vine and learning how to cultivate things. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is, you go and you learn how to grow these things. And this is what I mean when I say, like, that's what we are trying to do. That's what we believe. We believe that our ambition in life ought to be to bring other people to Jesus. And if we don't like people, then it means we still have to be around people. And the way people work is you actually get around them again and you begin to realize that you do like them more than you thought. It's just that they remind you a lot of yourself and that you're more similar than you would think. And that isolation is never a good thing and it always leads to death. And that some of us have just gotten way too comfortable being isolated and slowly dying instead of growing in relationships with other people. We read this in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. I just put one part of it up here, but this is where Jesus converts uh, uh, Matthew. We read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And, on, and as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus says this, that we are to go and we are to make disciples of all people. We are to go to every kind of people group. He says all nations, and that's translated to mean every people group, which means Gentiles who weren't really comfortable with Jewish people, you still gotta work on it. And Jewish people who aren't comfortable with non-Jewish people who aren't really religious and don't know the Bible and have different customs and you kinda think they're weird and you feel uncomfortable with them, he says go to them because they're all people groups. He, this, this implies that we go to the four corners of the world, but this also implies that we go to the people that are different from us right down the street who we're often the most isolated from. And many of us are more comfortable hopping on a plane and serving somebody of another people group in another continent, but would have no interest and would be completely blind to a person who's completely different from us in our own city in which we live, our own school in which we attend. And so Jesus says that we are to go, so I will go, and he says we are to make disciples, so I will make disciples, and he says of all people. And so I will go and I'll make disciples of all people. We can only impact as many people as we can have real relationships with. This is why I say that sometimes we, we get a little bit confused when we start to depend on programs. Because the idea of a program is the church will build something and we can get a lot of people together in one room or in one time. And then because we got so many people together, they'll all be discipled and they'll grow. But we can all be honest about the fact that usually when we're sitting in a big group of people, that we're not growing in the way that we are through relationship with someone else. And the truth of the matter is that when Jesus says, I call you to go and make disciples of all people, he's not saying to go convert everybody to all the things that you believe into being just like you as a person. He wants us to go and actually be with people. He sat in Matthew's house, surrounded by sinners and tax collectors. And the religious leaders saw him and they said, what in the world are you doing? And Jesus quoted the Old Testament to them and he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does that mean? I'll make it easy for you. I'll explain it. A religious person thinks that being religious means learning to sacrifice more and more and more. The more disciplined I get, the more things I give up, the more rules I put in my life, the more I've proven to God that I'm a hard worker and I'm giving up everything for him, he'll be impressed. And Jesus says, God isn't impressed by that. He says, you know what impresses God? Mercy. So put yourself around some people that require you to show mercy. The more mercy you show, the happier God is. 
And this freaks a lot of us out because we think that God is looking at us and he's going, you listen here. I expect you to insulate yourself and protect yourself from all these evil people around you. And if you become anything like them and you let the world get any worse, then you're gonna have to answer for it when I see you at the end of all this. But in reality, what God's doing is he's probably not shaking a finger at us, but what he's doing is he's looking at us and he's saying, I want you to show mercy to as many people as you can. I want you to go to all people and I want you to show mercy to those people. And every time you have an opportunity to show mercy and you do it, it's a really good thing and you are fulfilling the job that I've given you, the thing I've called you to do. And every evangelist, disciple maker, missionary, every disciple maker, every person I've talked to who has tried to do this seriously has said this. They have said, I got to a point where I realized that there was a lot that I can learn from people who weren't believers and who weren't like me. That because I'm trying to be loving and I meet a neighbor who is actually better at being loving than I am, that I can learn from that person. That I can learn from the humility of others, the honesty of others, the integrity of others who may not even be doing those things in the name of Jesus, but there are things that I can actually gain. And if we don't believe that we can actually be better by being in relationship with people who aren't just like us, then we will never be around people who are, li- who are not like us because we'll be afraid that it, will, that it will change us, it will distort us, it will hurt us. But is that what Jesus is modeling? He is sitting and eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves. He is eating with them. He is dining with them, which is one of the most like, intimate things you can do in community with a group of people. And what he's showing us is that it's what we see in the, the parable of the prodigal son, which I absolutely love this parable because there's these two sons, and they're both blowing it, but they're both blowing it in totally opposite ways. One thinks that he's going to find happiness by ignoring the father and going off and living a life of debauchery. And the other one thinks he's going to find happiness by proving through some legalistic way that he's the hardest working, most honest person in the world. And to both of the people, the father's saying, you're blowing it. And we are one of those brothers much of the time. We're prone to be this one or this one. And there's a benefit. How did the older brother realize the situation he was in? By observing the younger brother, by by being in life with the younger brother. And how did the younger brother realize what he needed was by being a part of the household with the older brother. That I actually grow and learn more by being around people who don't believe what I believe, do the things that I do, are different from me. Especially if I'm ever called to show mercy to them. And so he says that we are to go to make disciples of all nations, of all people. And our job is to try to make all of this as accessible as humanly possible. And what that means is this. It means actually being in a relationship with somebody, which takes time and it takes effort. It means actually saying, I care enough about you to know you regardless of what happens, regardless of where this goes, regardless of what you believe. And that because I believe that life is only found in Christ, any person that I really care about, that I'm really honest with, who knows me and anything about my life, will see that and will know that thing. And so how do we do this? How do we live with ambition, knowing that we all have it? Well, it's simple. We first of all recognize, I am complete in Christ. I don't need to prove anything to anyone. I don't need to use any set of gifts, get any job, be noticed by any group of people, accomplish anything in order to be fulfilled and complete if I have Christ. And then to recognize that God is saying to anyone that follows Jesus, I am calling you to something and I want this to be the thing that you are not just doing, but that you are ambitious for, that you long to see happen that you are willing to pour yourself into, that in whatever you do for a job and however you use your gifts and whatever your family looks like, that you use all of those things toward the advancements of this gospel. If you do that, here's where faith comes in. If you do that, you believe that there will be a day that you will stand before God and he will say, well done, and you will feel more fulfilled in having been a part of that mission 
than anything that you could have ever spent your life doing apart from that. We are told this in Scripture. And if we believe it, then we believe that we can use all the gifts that we have. And we can take all of the discontent and desire that we have for the things in life and that those things can be used in this job that he calls us to. But what that means is this. It means that we are all called to be missionaries, to be disciple makers, and to go. And because that's really hard, and if we're honest, most of us don't want to do that, then we have to get together with one another first and say, how do I do that? And that's the next step. Let's pray. Father, we're talking so much about identity and about who we really are. And there's no way to talk about who we are without talking about what we spend our entire lives doing. And so many of us think of our identity of who we are as being defined by our passions, our desires, the things we want to see happen in the world. And many of us honestly don't resonate with this mission you've given us. We don't feel a heart for the lost or for the undiscipled. We struggle to be around people. We, we, we struggle to be about anything but the things we're already ambitious for. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart for others. That you would give us a heart to see the undiscipled, discipled, the lost reached, and that you would bring more workers, Lord that you would bring more laborers and that we would have the courage to stand up and to be willing to do that ourselves, that we would give our lives to it and that we would know it's fulfilling. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, that's exactly what we pray um, this morning for your heart and the place of ours. And God, the reason I think I can, I think so much about the students in the hallway is because I can relate to being that person, um, to not having an easy time hearing what others hear and paying attention to what others pay attention to, needing to be sought out and helped, Lord. And Father, I I felt that way about the gospel when it came into my life, that I needed to be sought out, I needed to be engaged in by people who cared about me. And I'm so grateful for that because those people had your heart. And Father, that's our prayer this morning is that the things that we are driven by, the things that we long for, that we would not need them in the way people without you would need them because we are complete in you, that we are not defined by ourselves but by you, and that because of that, our prayer is that you would give us your heart, that you would break our heart for those who don't yet know you and who know you but not well, that you would cause us to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about them, praying for them, longing for them to know you more, Lord. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.